The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Happy Friday to you. I hope the weather is good wherever you are here. It's going to hit, I think, 90 uh, today in Los Angeles. We're having a very warm spring. Uh, some of you may be experiencing that as well. Thank you for listening on podcast, on live stream, on radio on every single source where you can get an audio program, we are there. You can also watch us on Twitter's Periscope Live, LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live, and YouTube Live. We are live. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for joining us. And speaking of joining us, Jessica Azoulay is Executive Director of Alliance for a Green Economy. Agree. They are a New York-based organization working toward 100% renewable energy systems. Jessica is originally from rural West Virginia, you know, that state where Joe Manchin is. And she grew up watching her parents and her community fight to keep clean water and protect their land from corporate energy companies. In her role at Agree, Jessica is a policy analyst, researcher, and activist who puts her skills in the hands of people all over New York fighting to eliminate dirty energy in all forms. The website for Agree is allianceforagreeneconomy.org. Again, that website is allianceforagreeneconomy.org. On Twitter, follow them there. Their handle as at Agree New York, at Agree New York. More than a pleasure to have Jessica joining us. Uh, Jessica, thank you for uh, being with us on this Friday afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And a pleasure to have you with us. Um, let, let's talk about some game changers that we're seeing take place in states and, and, and largely blue states where I am in California, uh, you are in the state of New York. There's been a major provision included in New York uh, Governor Kathy Hochul's 2023 fiscal year budget. And in that budget, they include something which is unprecedented. I mean, unprecedented investments and regulations in decarbonizing all new residential buildings by 2027. Uh, these residential buildings are responsible in, in New York State for up to a third of the greenhouse gas emissions. Any of us like myself that have lived in New York uh, know how uh, old, outdated, antiquated uh, some of these uh, buildings are that people are living in and, and what it can be doing to their health. Um, so let's talk about that. What what does this mean for people that don't understand all the, the, the terminology? Decarbonizing all new residential buildings by 2027. And how unprecedented is this? And will other states follow suit? Yeah, thank you so much. So, yeah, we're very excited to see Governor Hochul, um, you know, coming out strong in her first executive budget proposal. Um you know, helping to work to decarbonize buildings. And our state Senate has put forth their proposal for their budget, um, and it's being negotiated right now. And the Senate is actually um, trying to move this timeline even faster with um, smaller buildings 
decarbonizing. Um, this is talking about new construction, so new buildings going up. Um, in 2024, these would have to um, be all electric buildings, meaning there's no fossil fuel system in them. So the budget is being negotiated right now. And, you know, we're hoping for this faster timeline and just very excited that New York is poised to be the first state in the country to require this kind of code for new construction. And I know, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering, what does it mean to have a building without fossil fuels, right? How am I going to heat my, my home? How am I going to, you know, heat my water, cook my food? Um, and the good news is that there are technologies available that allow us to get all of our needs met um, with heating, hot water, cooking, et cetera, without burning fossil fuels in our buildings. Um, there are geothermal and cold climate air source heat pumps that can heat our homes and heat our water. And then we have electric appliances for hot water heating as well. And we can use electric or induction stoves um, to heat our food. And so what we're asking for is for new buildings that are going up to use these modern and clean appliances to make sure that, that we have healthy um, and safe places to live. And now, um, as you mentioned, and I mentioned as well, this is the nation's first statewide ban on natural gas for new buildings, raising the national bar for climate action action for buildings. Um, and these buildings, uh, you know, as you point out, and, you know, I mentioned prior to bringing you in, are a top source of emissions uh, and an area where policymakers at the state level can actually exert an unusual degree of influence. Let's talk about that. I think when people, you know, think about legislation when it, you know, pertains to climate change, they think about the president, uh, they think about the House, they think about the Senate. But here's an example where people on a state level, uh, you know, whether it's governors or you know, state House and Senate members in in, in various states throughout the country, uh, do have this a degree, an unusual degree of influence. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, as the as the climate crisis worsens and we all start to feel the effects of it and, you know, the international scientific community is telling us that climate change is already here and it's already damaged so many of our ecosystems and, you know, it's just accelerating faster than than they thought. I think we're, you know, we're seeing climate action happen at every level. We're seeing people taking action into their own, own hands and changing their own houses and transportation, et cetera. We're seeing local governments working to, you know, move their cities and towns off of fossil fuels. And we're seeing action at the state level as well. And, you know, New York has passed one of the strongest climate laws in the country, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act which mandates that we um, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 and 85% by 2050. And, you know, we are very excited to be one of the states of many that are taking climate action. And we see this um, proposal to stop, uh, to ban fossil fuels and new construction as the next step for implementing that law. We're still using fossil fuels in New York. Um, we're still expanding our gas system right now because we're putting up new buildings that, um, you know, are then putting, have fossil fuel systems in them. So, you know, before we can start reducing, we have to stop digging the hole. We have to stop going backwards. And this is just a common sense approach to, to really help us turn the tide here.
So let's talk about a couple of things. The blueprint in the state of New York calls for the state to pass legislation requiring all new buildings to use zero emission sources of heat by the year 2027 in the next five years. So the first question is, for people that, again, aren't familiar, whether they live in a home or apartment building, building uh, they rent or they own, um, why? You know, what good is it to them? And then in addition, the practices you mentioned would require mostly electricity to be used rather than fossil fuels. Another thing people, you know, want to understand is not just the why, but how does it affect me, especially fiscally as a consumer? So would those electrical costs be heightened and passed down uh, to the consumer, in other words, the renter or the purchaser of these units of these new residential dwellings in New York? So you're getting at some of the very important questions that everyone is asking, you know, and that, and that first question of why, right? Why should we do this and what's in it for me? Um, so, you know, in addition to the climate impacts of burning fossil fuels in buildings, which, you know, does have a, a big impact on everyone, um, there's also a lot of information coming out now about the health impacts of burning fossil fuels in buildings. New York leads the nation in premature deaths caused from burning fossil fuels in our buildings. Um, you know, these appliances being right on site are putting air pollution out in our kitchens, our stoves, when we burn fossil fuels in our kitchen are putting um, particulate matter and, and pollution into the air right where we breathe. This increases um, asthma symptoms and the risk of asthma for children. So, you know, there's a, there's a big health benefit for the individual to get these sources of burning things out of their buildings and the pollution. Um, and then in terms of the fiscal impact, one of the reasons why starting with new construction is, is such a common sense policy um, is that putting, putting a new building up with these systems in place instead of fossil fuel systems with the all electric appliances and, and facilities in place, it's not more expensive. Um, so if you build the building, you know, from the get-go in a climate and health-friendly way, it, it's the construction costs themselves are, in most cases, not more expensive. And then, you know, you're still, you're going to need electricity, but because heat pumps are such an efficient use of electricity, you know, I think a lot of times people think about electric heat and they think about the um the baseboard heating, right? The, the, the older type of electric heating, which often, which does use more electricity and, and is often more expensive to run. But these are, but heat pumps are extremely efficient. And so they use relatively small amounts of electricity. And that's how Okay, hold this. that thought, Christmas. Jessica, hold that thought. Sorry, we're up against a hard break. I was so enthralled in what you were saying. I wasn't uh, watching the time. <laughs> Quick break. We'll be back with Jessica Asule, Executive Director of Alliance for a Green Economy, Agree. Uh, their website, allianceforagreeneconomy.org. Check that out during the break. And on Twitter, follow them at, at Agree New York. We'll be back right after this. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is Jessica Azule, Executive Director of Alliance for a Green Economy Agree. They're a New York-based organization working toward 100% renewable energy systems. You can follow them on Twitter at Agree New York. Agree is uh, the website for Agree is allianceforagreeneconomy.org. Um, we were talking as uh, New York 
uh, has a, a residential decarbonization uh, piece of legislation in the new fiscal budget for the state of New York. This is they follow their largest city, the largest city in the country, actually, New York City, Manhattan, the Big Apple, uh, it, you know, was doing that. Will other uh, states, will other cities follow suit? We'll see. And we're talking with Jessica about that. Executive Director of Alliance for a Green Economy, agree uh, this afternoon. Uh, Jessica, thank you for um, holding and welcome back. Um, you know, we we talk. I just mentioned that you know, New York State is following in the footsteps of New York City. New York City became the largest U.S. city uh, in December to ban the use of fossil fuels for building heat. Um, but this legislation, or at least the proposal for this by the governor of New York, goes beyond this because they also laid out a new target, electrifying 2 million homes by 2030, going beyond uh, the five years ahead right now. And that would entail a tenfold increase in the current rate of adoption of electric heat. Right now, at least 800,000 of the homes under the plan would house low and moderate income New Yorkers. So this would not just provide more housing, obviously, for moderate and low income New Yorkers. Uh, it would provide safer housing. And in a sense, Jessica, isn't this where the world is headed and the United States needs to get on board? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that what we're seeing right now is um, we're all just experiencing another dimension to the the crises caused by fossil fuels and looking at um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the volatility in world energy markets that that is causing. Um, and we're seeing Europe act by accelerating their plans to switch people from fossil fuel heating to heat pumps. Um, France, for instance, has decided it's going to end its subsidies for fossil fuel heating um, and put the, put the funding and the support behind accelerating the switch to heat pumps for heating their homes. And, you know, New York has this opportunity right now to become the first state in the nation to um, follow suit and ban fossil fuels in new construction and make sure that we are also putting heat pumps and accelerating heat pump adoption. And I'm so glad you mentioned the New York City law. Um, you know, I think that is creating a lot of momentum for taking that policy to a statewide level. And, you know, the New York City law goes into effect with um, smaller buildings starting in 2024. Um, and we're really hoping that as the state budget gets negotiated, that we're going to see the governor's timeline moved up to follow suit in the New York City law um, and also do the smaller buildings below seven stories um, starting in 2024 and then all buildings by by 2027. And, you know, those smaller buildings, we know there's there's not a technical challenge with moving them off of fossil fuels. And I think we're just seeing the urgency is very clear right now that we need to move the world off of reliance on fossil fuels. And we're very hopeful that we're going to get this done in New York. You know, I think a lot of people uh, raised an eyebrow. I know I certainly did in looking over the materials before you had had you on the program today, that in New York, nearly a third of all greenhouse gas emissions traced to buildings, right? Much of it from burning those fossil fuels on site for warmth. And, you know, I come from Boston. I know the Northeast can have a six-month winter or temperatures that dip, uh, you know, below a certain amount that you, you need that. You know, whether you're living, you know, in the home, you're working from home, more people have been home, especially uh, during this and since uh, the uh, pandemic, which we're technically uh, still in. Uh, and that has made the sector a target for climate planners, right? Because climate planners have to figure out how to comply 
I mean, there's a 29, uh, 2019 state law mandating a carbon-free grid by 2040 and net zero emissions by 2050. Um, I want to also add, uh, you know, more to what the governor has uh, proposed in her budget, uh, $500 million for offshore wind ports, manufacturing, and supply chains, while awarding new contracts for two gigawatts of offshore wind power. Correct me if I'm wrong here, that to me spells out jobs, jobs, jobs. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing here is because of that 2019 law and the mandate that it sets that we have to make these emissions reductions, we have to move our whole economy um, towards supporting this goal, right? So it's, it is about, you know, manufacturing and construction and changing over the heating systems and all of the buildings over time. Um, and so, you know, there there are so many jobs in this sector. Our state government put out a jobs report um, that showed that in the energy efficiency sector, so this is weatherization um, and other energy efficiency measures, as well as installation of heat pumps and buildings, there are 121,000 jobs already in that sector. And so as you can imagine that we're planning to accelerate that transition and do more weatherization and more heat pump installations, the jobs are going to explode. And we're so excited um, about, you know, having that opportunity and, and moving our economy off of fossil fuels. In this budget in 2027, 100% of the state of New York school bus purchases must be electric under the governor's vision on the way to an entirely electric fleet by 2035, which would keep our children not just safe on the way to and from school in the bus, but when they get off the bus with the air that they breathe. Yes, and I think, um, you know, what you've been touching on here is all of the different parts of the energy system that we have to move. Right. So, you know, we've been talking for most of this program about buildings, which is a huge source of greenhouse gases in New York, as you said, about a third. Transportation is another big um, source of greenhouse gases. It's very close to that, um, to the amount that's put out by buildings. And so, you know, we have to, as we're moving our buildings off of fuel, fossil fuels, be thinking about how we're moving our transportation off of fossil fuels. And then, you know, the offshore wind and other investments in renewable energy is how we're going to power all of this, right? As we move our transportation to electric vehicles and electric public transportation and electric school buses, and as we move our homes to efficient electric heat pumps, we're going to, the way we 100% clean up all of the fossil fuels in the system is by creating a renewable electricity grid so that all of the renewal, all of the electricity that we're using to power these things in our lives is coming from clean energy as well. We have a minute left. So very briefly, I understand why the gas industry is trying to fight these energy provisions. Why are real estate developers? You know, what, what we saw in New York City is that it's, um, you know, there are many uh, real estate developers that are excited about this transition as well. So the real estate industry is not a monolith. There are, there are people that are pushing the envelope and moving this transition already. And, um, you know, I, I think it's more a matter of the timeline than it is about opposing the, the solution completely. Mm. Um, you know, we're trying to go as fast as possible because we just think we shouldn't be putting up new buildings with fossil fuels right now, given the climate and health impacts of doing that. Um, and I think, you know, right now it's just a question of when, not if.
Jessica, thank you for being with us. Jessica Azule, Executive Director of Alliance for a Green Economy, agree. Check out their website. Learn more about this, allianceforagreeneconomy.org. That website, once again, is allianceforagreeneconomy.org. On Twitter, follow them there. Their Twitter handle is at Agree New York. That's at Agree New York. I'm Leslie Marshall. Coming up, guest number two on the other side of this hour. Don't go away. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. So glad to have with us in the second hour a great guest, but want to thank all of you for listening on radio, on podcast, on stream, and watching on Twitter's Periscope, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, LinkedIn Live, whichever way you listen to or watch the program. We appreciate you. Happy Friday, and I'm happy to bring on board today John Sinton. John is executive director and CEO of Let Majority Rule. Let Majority Rule is a nonpartisan organization. They're dedicated to ensuring that America hears the voice of the majority of voters. You know those people that elected our officials that many of our officials ignore? In early 2011, John co-founded the smartphone app Progressive Voices. It aggregates all progressive content that is seen, heard, or read. But then the next year, Progressive Voices launched a streaming radio service, the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. And the websites for Let Majority Rule and Progressive Voices are letmajorityrule.org, and progressivevoices.com. Many of you hear me through that. Their Twitter handles are Let Majority Rule, at Let Majority Rule, and at Prague Voice. John's handle is at John Sinton, J O N S I N T O N. Be sure to follow all three and check out those websites. Uh, John, good to have you with us. I've known you for years, but it's good to have you on the program. Welcome. Leslie, it's great to be here and so wonderful to see you. Uh, w- wonderful to see you as well. Uh, I want to ask first, I know because I'm part of PV, Progressive Voices, um, you know, why you established that. What made you establish Let Majority Rule? What what prompted you to do that? Because I sense it's more than just a project for you, but a passion as well. It, it is. And it's a good question, Leslie. The truth of the matter is I was motivated to start both of these for the same reason. And it is simply frustration. You know, uh, if I can rewind just a little bit, um, as you recall, uh, I had an idea in about 2003 to compete with uh, conservative talk radio. And so I started the platform called Air America Radio um, and did that out of complete frustration. And then a number of years later, when the promise of the Internet, at least technically, had had really hit home, I was equally frustrated and said, you know, we need a digital presence. And so out of that frustration, Progressive Voices grew. And of course, that's we're so pleased to host you and and uh, uh, Stephanie Miller and Randy Rhodes and Tom Hartman and Mike Malloy and so forth. But then a few years later, two years ago, to be precise, I looked up and I said, you know, we are living in the least democratic democracy I can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I was so frustrated by minority rule. We are on three levels, and I'm sure we'll talk about all three, but beginning initially with the Electoral College, because it was right after the last presidential election. Excuse me. And I took a long, hard look with my partners, Ron Hartenbaum and George Vassalopoulos, who you also know, 
Um, you know, the three of us got together with a guy named Tom Campo, who's super sharp uh, uh, media consultant in New York. And we said, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Ever since elementary school, when you voted for student council president, the person who got the most votes won. There was nothing complicated about that. And so we said, geez, how we, I don't think we could get a, a, a constitutional amendment passed because that has become impossible. And that would be kind of the only way structurally that we could think of to, to kill the electoral college and let majority rule. And then we learned about something called the electoral college uh, interstate compact, which has been signed by the way, by uh, 17 states already. And, and I think we need three more populous states that if they sign the compact, they will guarantee through legislative action in their states that the person who wins the presidential popular vote in their state wins all of their electoral votes, effectively sidestepping the electoral college. So, so that resonated with us. And then we started all this Joe Manchin nonsense and the Kristen or uh, the cinema nonsense from, from Arizona. And we realized that we were going to have to take on the filibuster because it is the least democratic way to get legislation passed. And it has become a perversion of its, you know, I think everybody, let me, uh, a weird transition, but everybody thinks about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the fantastic right. Jimmy Stewart movie, um, w w where this neophyte, naive farm boy gets elected to the Senate and goes to Washington and discovers to his horror what we all already know, which is that's the most corrupt city in North America. <laughs> and and he stages a filibuster, as you may recall from the movie, he's trying to stop a land grab or so something. And he speaks until he's hoarse. And then he speaks some more and he can't drink enough water because he's now talked for 18 hours. But that was the talking filibuster. And that was a way to effectively slow or stop debate in the United States Senate. But we no longer have a talking filibuster. Now, all you have to do is send a text message to the secretary of the Senate and say no. And the legislative wheels, which don't move very quickly to begin with, grind to a halt. So, so, so we began to look at that and think, well, geez, could you do a carve out maybe? There are 69 now, or maybe it's 71 anyway, there are a number of carve outs to the filibuster, but we couldn't get Manchin or Cinema to agree to carve out uh, uh, fixing the VRA, the Voting Rights Act. And so we're kind of stuck and it made us go back and study a little bit and to our horror, we discovered that the filibuster is not constitutional. In fact, the filibuster was opposed by Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and James Madison. <clears throat> Not to mention Alexander Hamilton, who wrote about it extensively in the Federalist Papers and said, this is ridiculous, that's a horrible idea. And, and uh, you know, it was championed by people like Henry Clay, the senator from South Carolina, and it became a tool of racist slaveholders to make sure 
that the majority of Americans were never able to take uh, slaveholding away from the southern states. So it has an ignominious beginning. It has a middle section where it was sort of noble. And we are right back to ignominy again, Leslie. Well, I, you know, I would agree with you on that. Um, I, I've, you know, I've been uh, in favor of doing away with the Electoral College for a long time because, uh, you know, both of these, uh, whether the filibuster or the Electoral College, they're in a sense b- based in fear and greed combination. And in, adi- in addition to that, they're both antiquated. I mean, the time, the, look at the population. Uh, we didn't have all 50 states, obviously, when, you know, this all came about. And in addition to that, we didn't have gerrymandering. OK. And and I, and I think that's that's key um, because, you know, it's almost like, you know, like you said, like, how do we work around and not even just gerrymandering? You go beyond that. You have people, to, you know, forming committees in different states like, you know, Arizona that say, well, if we don't like what that district, who that district votes for, we're just not going to we're just not going to allow it. We're not going to allow the results uh, to take place. So we're way beyond, you know, where the, where this was. Um, and, um, you know, because the time we're going to be going to break, I want to break that down. Uh, you spoke to the legislative, uh, filibuster. Um, you know, th- there, are, there are certainly limited applications, right? Um, you know, you talked about the use of the filibuster, the legislative filibuster during our lifetime. You talk about how it's exploded to absurd levels right now. And from 1917 to 1970, this, the Senate took a total of what, 49 so-called votes uh, to end the filibuster. Um, you know, so obviously this isn't, you know, something new. This is something that since our founding forefathers and slavery were around, uh, many people who we have voted for in our lifetime have, have rallied against this. You know, that's exactly right. And you mentioned another uh, key word, and it is the third leg in the stool that holds up letmajorityrule.org, and that is gerrymandering. And maybe when we come back after the break, we can talk a little bit about that too, because it oh, yeah. it, it belongs in the pantheon of anti-democratic devices that democracies use. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Electoral College. We're going to talk a little bit more about the filibuster, and we're going to talk about gerrymandering. But even more so, we're going to talk about the solution to these problems because the ability to vote is is essential. And really, that's what truly makes us and should make us as a, a nation stand apart from the rest of the world. The freedom, not just of our voice, but the freedom of our vote and to express our voices uh, through that vote and to have our votes counted, have each and every vote counted. A true democracy is, I know we're operating as a republic, but a true democracy is majority. We'll be back with John right after this. John Sinton, executive director and CEO of Let Majority Rule. Be sure to check out the website. He is also uh, the co-founder of Progressive Voices. Go to letmajorityrule.org, uh, progressivevoices.com. Those are the two websites. Follow John at John Sinton. Follow Let Majority Rule at Let Majority Rule. And follow Progressive Voices at Prog Voice. Back right after this. We are back. It is Friday, TGIF, and I'm very grateful that John Sinton is our guest. John is executive director and CEO of Let Majority Rule. As I mentioned, they're a nonpartisan organization dedicated to ensuring that America hears the voice of the majority of voters 
And he is also co-founder of Progressive Voices. They are the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn, a streaming radio service, which I'm very proud of that the Leslie Marshall Show is a part of. The websites for Let Majority Rule and Progressive Voices are letmajorityrule.org and progressivevoices.com. And on Twitter, you can follow them at Let Majority Rule, at Prague Voice, and follow John at John Sinton. John, thanks for holding. Welcome back. Um, so let's break down uh, the problem, right? Our ability to vote, our ability to have our votes counted and our voices heard, each vote counted, each voice heard. Uh, we touched upon the legislative filibuster, um, and I know we're going to get to gerrymandering. Um, what do you want to do first? Do you want to talk gerrymandering? You want to do a little electoral college chat first? Uh, you know, go for it. Yeah, yeah. well, let's let's talk gerrymandering for a moment, because, you know, what was a problem beginning in the early part of last century uh, when when a when a when a legislator from upstate New York, whose name was Jerry, uh, decided that you could reshape congressional districts to exclude and include as you so chose to get some control of your legislature. And uh, the the first one uh, looked like a salamander, which is how you put Jerry and salamander together and got gerrymandering. Um, and it was a problem, but it wasn't a huge problem until the last 10 years when very sophisticated computer software came along and it ran on very fast computers. And suddenly you were able to take districts and reshape them, not down to the zip code, not even down to the street, but down to the house address. And this way you could pack districts the way you wanted them and you could uh, cut them up the way you wanted them. And you could make sure that in a state like North Carolina, which is everyone's problem child, uh, that 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 even though the majority of the voters in the state would would in this instance would want to vote for Democrats, their ten congressional seats I think is the number it might be twelve anyway the, those seats they they packed all of the Democratic voters into two districts and when asked uh, the I think the Speaker of the House in in North Carolina when when they asked him. How, how come there are only two Democratic districts in, in, a, in a state that votes majority Democratic? And he said, well, because we just couldn't figure out a way to pack them all into one. So we are dealing with a level of cynicism and anti-democratic uh, fervor that we've never dealt with before. And the frightening thing, Leslie, is now they have the tools to do it. And, you know, I, I, let majority rule is is nonprofit and nonpartisan. All we're looking for is a fair fight. You know, I'm admittedly a liberal, I'm admittedly and proudly a Democrat, but I, I'm also more than anything else an American. And I believe that America was founded on the principle that we're all created equal. We've struggled with that through the years. We get better, we fall back. But we also we're founded on the idea of one man, one vote. In those days, it really went meant one man. Right, and of right, course, right. we mean the species. Uh, but but we've gotten so far away from that, and we've gotten. And and I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll say to the Democrats in Maryland who gerrymandered ridiculously, stop it. But I will say to the Republicans everywhere else because they are. The, this is not a false equivalency. They are decidedly the worst offenders. 
and I and I will say to them, if you're so bankrupt of good ideas that you have to cheat and you have to stack the deck and you have to unlevel the playing field to win, then come on. This, you know, what kind of country do you really want? Well, I know the answer to that. You want a country where you prevail and nobody else is allowed. And that's not what we were founded on. And that is what let majority rule is fighting against. Let majority rule, you know, to to me is interesting because I'm a liberal Democrat. I'm a progressive and I agree with you. Um, I think the majority of Americans don't want to win by cheating. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Lance Armstrong, right? We were all like, oh, wow, and you won and we love you. But when people heard he cheated, it wasn't that way anymore. What was it? You didn't win. You didn't fight fair and square and you didn't win fair and square. You cheated. And it makes my skin crawl. Uh, you know, when Donald Trump was elected, uh, you know, I cried for like three days that I wasn't going to have my first woman president. And, you know, my daughter put her hand on my hand when I, you know, cast my vote for Hillary Clinton. Oh but I never, ever once said it was a hoax. I never once said, you know, that he cheated. You know, I didn't agree with the will of the electoral college, um, but, you know, that's what it was. So we're in, I think, very scary times. And it's interesting you bring up North Carolina because I remember somebody had asked, you know, some, somebody, um, you know, in, in, you know on, on the voting commission there in the state, what about the the black community? Because North Carolina is one of those examples where they truly proved disenfranchisement of African Americans specifically, and they said, "Oh, well, there there always have to be casualties." And to your point, Donald Trump didn't even have didn't even have forty percent; he had thirty some percent of the state of North Carolina, and they have literally like. 76% or 79%, something like above 75% of North Carolina is, is you know, in, in favor of Republican and Republican leaning. This is, this is not, it's not a fair fight. And like you said, look, I want to win, but if I win, I want to win fair and square. And if I lose, I want to lose fair and square. And I think, I think the most people want that. I don't think most people want to cheat. When you have surgery, you don't want your surgeon to have cheated his way through medical school. Yikes. No, I think you're exactly right, Les. You know, if you go to letmajorityrule.org, one of the first things that you'll see, our, 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 our overarching statement is, Americans are the champions of fair play. You know, we like a level playing field. We, we, we want to know that when our team takes the field and wins, it won fair and square. I don't I, I have a hard time understanding Americans who who want to cheat and win. And, and, and it just it, it makes no it, it just makes no sense to me. And the reason that I bring up North Carolina is for many, many years I lived in the state of Georgia. People would say to me as an aside, how come you live there instead of New York or Los Angeles? And I was like, well, because we're the this, this is where the fight is. So uh, I joined a good government watchdog group called Common Cause, which has its roots in the aftermath of Watergate. And over time, I became the chairman of Common Cause. And we championed, uh, we championed fair elections more than anything else. And one of the things that really bothered us was gerrymandered districts. And so we initiated a lawsuit in the state of North Carolina which we knew 
or figured we would lose. As it happens, it kind of got fought to a draw. And then you have a Democratic uh, governor of the state of North Carolina, and he, he was an ally and was able to kind of hold back the tide. Um, but we argued the case in federal court that said, all we want is a fair shot. All we want is a level playing field. And if you have 700,000 people per district, then the district should look and represent its geography, its similarities, its neighborhoods. It shouldn't look like a barbell that stretches across the entire state and mm -hmm. is a tiny thin line from edge to edge, but on both ends is huge. Well, th those aren't communities. Those aren't like communities. There may be mountains and lakes in between them that separate them. These people don't even know each other. How is it fair that those people have been jammed into this same artificial community and been told, and now this person is your representative? So, you know, we come by it honestly. Americans like a fair fight. And I just think we've been too clever by half. And, you know, we have outsmarted ourselves on the electoral college front, which, as you note, Leslie, is antiquated and no longer useful to us. We have done the same thing with the filibuster um, and ultimately with gerrymandering, where we have allowed minority rule in a democracy, which is definitionally opposite of where we should be. Last minute, Benjamin Franklin said, we know a republic if you can keep it. How do we keep it? What is the solution? Less than 60 seconds, John. Well, you know, a fair fight, please. The way we keep it is we get back to our roots and we level the playing field for everyone. We let the popular vote determine the president. We let communities of like-minded people be together and ungerrymandered. And we stop this nonsense of calling the Senate the greatest deliberative body in history until it really is once again. And the only way you do that is by killing the filibuster. John, excellent having you with us. Uh, John Sinton, Executive Director and CEO of Let Majority Rule. Please follow them on Twitter at Let Majority Rule. Go to the website at let, oh, excuse me, letmajorityrule.org. And the Progressive Voices, he's co-founder uh, uh, co of that, which I'm a part of, you all listen to. Progressivevoices.com is the website. On Twitter, follow them at Prog Voice, P-R-O-G Voice. And John's private Twitter handle is at John Sinton, J-O-N-S-I-N-T-O-N. 